I can say to you, hand on heart, almost every one of my successful entrepreneurial friends has been through depression. Almost every single one of them. I mean, it is just, it is just the world that we live in. We're not designed to be on our phones 24-7. We are not designed to be constantly on aeroplanes, cha- you know, traveling amongst different time zones, the tiredness and the fatigue from that. We're not, we're not designed to, to be that way. We're not. And I think, you know, if you are going to be successful, you have to understand there will likely be a time in your life where you go a little bit too far. And welcome to the show. My name is Michael Campion, and welcome to the podcast where I sit down with exceptional thinkers and communicators, some famous, some unknown, but all of whom have done the hard introspection necessary to live an examined life. We'll listen to creatives and CEOs, professional athletes and actors, entrepreneurs and artists, all of them are students of the inner game, and understand intuitively that mastering one's inner game is a necessary prerequisite for having an impact on the outer world. For my part, my duty is always to you, the listener, to dig deeper than other shows, to get the guests comfortable enough so that we may see them in their three-dimensional entirety and really understand what motivates them, what's special about their lens on the world, so that I can unpack those lessons and help you become healthier, wealthier, happier, and wiser. My guest today is Jamie Hunt, an ex-professional athlete turned wildly successful entrepreneur. Jamie is one of the co-founders of Two Times You, the high-performance sportswear brand. Jamie helped create the brand back in 2005, and the business was eventually sold by him and his team at a nine-figure valuation. With so many brands now playing in that highly competitive apparel and athleisure market, it's well worth listening to someone who has managed to build a $200 million brand. Never content to bask in his former glories, Jamie is at it again with Aviro, Aviro is an antiviral clothing and face mask company, as well as a brand new performance sportswear brand, Prezio, which he's launching in January of 2021. Jamie was also a world-class triathlete, and we discussed the agonizing sliding doors moment that saw him controversially miss out on the Sydney Olympic Games back in the year 2000. We also talk about the transferable skills he's taken from sport to business, as well as the all too common incidences of depression among entrepreneurs. Jamie himself admits that, on paper, he shouldn't have been as successful as he has been. He wasn't well-educated, he had a speech impediment to overcome, but he credits hard work and his religious faith for enabling him to exceed those early limitations. I hope that you enjoy my chat with Jamie, and I'll catch you on the other side. professional triathlete for many years you reached a very very high level very yeah. competitive level yeah. how did you yeah. first fall in love with it uh, growing up in New Zealand and um, 
I'm interested particularly that you seem to have gravitated towards individual sports and not team sports. So I know that's a two yeah. a two part question, but let's start with kind of your love of, of triathlons and Ironmans and then maybe why you think you've consciously or unconsciously gravitated towards individual sports. Well, like when I first started doing triathlons back in high school, I think I was 14 years old and, um, and triathlon was a very new sport. But New Zealand very quickly had, um, probably became the leader in the sport from day one. We, we, we had a week called the Wheat Big Series here in New Zealand where about 20,000 young kids would do a triathlon you know, in their primary school years. And so in my first triathlon, I was 14 years old. It was the Auckland Schools Triathlon. There was close to 1,000 children doing it. Um, I, th- I think I finished tw- about 20th to last, to be honest. Um, but, um, but a sport already at that stage, it was already a really, really... Obviously, we had um, like Aaron Baker um, back in those days and Rick Wells were the two, he- were two like national heroes. But triathlon was a big sport. And this is back in the early, early probably mid-80s. Um, it was a big sport. So I actually went, um, you know, I was a swimmer uh, and a runner. Uh, and then um, I actually went down to boarding school in my fourth form year, like I guess four years ago of high school. Um, pretty much uh, saw a triathlon magazine um, and decided that um, I'd give it a crack. So I basically spent the next um, year or so learning how to ride my bike. Um, and then um, within like a year and a half, I was probably one of the, the best triathletes uh, in the high school in New Zealand. Um, and what was amazing back in those days is that triathlon, in, in my year level, I, I had Hamish Carter, um, who went to school other side of town, you know, Olympic gold medalist. Um, I had Cameron Brown, um, who was... 15-time Ironman champion, twice second at Kona. I had Bevan Doherty, Olympic silver medalist. I uh, Paul Amy, second of the world champs. Um, probably five other guys who became world champions some stage. So the, the, year, the, year, the year I went through at high school, we had so many amazing athletes. We just thought we were just a bunch of nationally ranked juniors. Um, but towards the end of our high school years, we started venturing off into the world and raced in world championships. And we soon discovered um, that we were actually were really, really good. And over the next 12 years, we matured, we got stronger, we got older, we got more mature, got, got fitter. Um, and um, we're not quite, say that quite the same nowadays. Um, <laughs> but, you know, we probably had the best generation of athletes of any country at any time come through New Zealand during, you know, during the years that I was a junior coming into being a pro athlete. That's amazing, amazing, right? What a good vintage, yeah. right? What a great vintage. And that's, that's something I've noticed about uh, a lot of successful athletes is whether they don't realize it at the time or not, like obviously you just thought you, you guys were you know, good within your own country, didn't realize at a global level you were so good. But you, the quality of your cohort is so important, right? Who you're pe- competing against and you make each other level up, right? You hold each other to much higher standards um, when you've got people of Absolutely. that caliber around you, right? That's awesome. Awesome. Absolutely. And, and I think the frustration we have nowadays is that, you know, us older guys now, you know, we often get together and have a few beers and, and talk, talk about the good old days. But, you know, <laughs> what, we, what we see nowadays is that, you know, when, when we were juniors, you know, young adults and on the pro scene, we had no help at all. We all pay for it ourselves. We all went hard, hard every single day. Um, and now we see the young guys come through kind of like kind of half making it, making it onto the New Zealand Academy, 
everything's paid for. You go and live down in Cambridge. Um, you know, everything's laid out on the plate. But when we were coming through, we had nothing. So we, you know, I think we're, we're, we're all on the unemployment benefit. You know, we all um, basically, we, we basically just all went hard day in, day out. And, and it was great. It was a great time to come through because every single day we pushed ourselves really, really hard. Um, and, you know, just really fortunate, to be honest. Yes. Brilliant. And and how, how did you actually manage to kind of make ends meet as, as a young triathlete? I know your, your best years, you said, were at university. That's when you felt you were fittest and at your peak. And then, you know, you competed for a number of years. What, what was actually the, you know, the financial reality of being a professional full-time triathlete back in those days? I mean, I think I was pretty lucky, actually. I, um, you know, I, um, I won two junior world duathlon titles back in the days when duathlon was, you know, was quite a reasonable big sport, especially in Europe. And so basically, I then spent the next three or four years as a full-time duathlete. Didn't make very much at all. Um, and, and then actually, funnily enough, I, um, I got an invitation to come and do the Hong Kong triathlon um, after, after spending, um, I think it was about six years as a pro duathlete. Um, went up there and the field was, you know, there was Cameron Brown, um, Scott Tinley, Scott Molina. And I, I actually won that race. And then I um, was actually, was actually was out of the water with all the top guys, you know, being a duathlete because I actually could swim. I was a swimmer when I was young, you know. Um, so I thought, hey, I might as well start doing triathlons again. So pretty much, I think for three months later, I raced in my first World Cup race, which was here in Auckland. Um, you know, Miles Stewart, Hamish Carter, the best guys of the day were racing there. Um, and I was, I was actually winning the race until, like, until the last K. And, and then Miles Stewart passed me in the finishing straight. Um, and, then, um, and, then, and then Hamish Carter got third. Um, and then from that race, actually, I picked up um, a big sponsor with New Balance in Japan. So I actually spent the next five years racing on the Japanese New Balance team, which basically was the only fully funded triathlon team in the world. It was me, it was Hamish. Um, a lot of the world's best athletes were on this team. So that was like a full salary, bonuses, um, so I was really lucky to spend the next, the next five or six years on that team all the way, all the way through to 2001. Um, so that was, so, so, so look, to be honest with you, you know, I was making, actually I made in the first five weeks back being a triathlete, made more money than my five years being a duathlete. So, um, <laughs> um, so, and, um, yeah, and, and I was, and at that time, that time I was married as well. Um, and, and I also started university, um, in my last two years, being a duathlete, my first year being a triathlete, I studied. I studied university, did an applied economics degree, just because I thought one day I'm going to have to quit. Um, and then, and then, then basically spent the next four years, um, you know, getting ready for the Olympic Games, uh, which obviously was 2000. It was the first Olympic Games. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, amazing, amazing. Yeah. So it. W- did you already have it crystallized in your mind that you did have to actually work on a plan B that had to be some kind of exit strategy for, for when you retired from professional sport? Because a lot of athletes really struggle with that, with that transition. Was that something that you were very conscious of about making that switch and making sure that you had a running, a running start? Yeah, no, no, it definitely was. I think I, um, the reason why I went to university, I mean, pretty much when I left high school, my mother goes to me, um, you know, Jamie, you can't go pro yet. You must, go and get a degree first. So I actually went um, when I was 18 years old and did a year um, becoming a travel agent, a travel agency course for a year. The reason why, the reason why I did it, I think there was uh, three guys in my course and about 25 girls. So that good was ratio, reason. Good ratio. <laughs> exactly, good ratio. <laughs> um, so so I, I did that. But when I got married when I was 21, I said, I said to my wife then, unless I'm making 
a really, really, really good money. By the time I turn, I turn 30, I'm going to retire. Um, and look, look, between the ages of 25 and 30, I think I, I, was, I, I was ranked in the top 10 of the world, um, had the highest rank in the number three for a couple of years. Um, and I was making like, like $100,000 a year, like enough to get by. I bought a house, but it wasn't, I was always under the illusion that, that, that I was giving up the best years of my life in my 20s to form a career long term. So by the time I hit 29, I said to my wife, look, I'm making enough for us to get by. But if I race any longer, it's going to be really, really hard for myself to form a career. Who wants to hire a 40-year-old washed-up athlete? Um, so at the age of 29 is when I retired, um, you know, thus entering the workforce. Yeah, great, mate. I think, I think you've, you've worked that well. You came out on a high, right, rather than kind of the old pro that hung on too long, right? <laughs> yeah, no, no, exactly. No, no, absolutely. And honest, honestly, too, I think I was, um, I was um, controversially left out of the Olympic team, um, even though I was ranked in the top, even though, even though I was Tell me about the top that. 10 in the world. Yeah, so I, um, it, was a, it was an interesting season of my life. I, um, you know, I was ranked top 10 in the world, we had two we had two trials for the Olympic team, um, and they said if you finish in the first fifteen in either trial, your name goes forward for the selectors um, to choose you for the team. So in the and then about four days out from the first race, the selectors um, said if you finish in the first five in the first race, you'll automatically qualify. Uh, I, the other athletes apparently knew of this three weeks out. I didn't. I was really tapering for the second race. So I raced in the first trial. I finished um, eighth in the first trial. Um, and that was the Sydney test, test event. Um, and then one of the Kiwis finished fifth. Um, and he had not really had done well the previous five years. Um, finished fifth, only 10 seconds ahead of me. Um, and he automatically qualified for the team, which I didn't really agree with. I said, look, he should at least come to Perth, the World Championships, and race there. A one-off result is not really what we were told it was. But anyway, he got on the team, was told he didn't need to go to Perth. One of his coaches was a selector, which I thought was a, wasn't probably the best way to have, to have a selector. But anyway, I, I, um, I then, you know, keep training through uh, for the next event, which is in Perth, uh, World Championships uh, 2000. And then, and then um, I was actually in, in the main pack on the bike, um, you know, was run alongside Chris McCormick, you know, all the top guys of the day. Uh, Hamish was in the pack. Um, there was five guys out front. And going into the very last corner of the last corner of the bike course, I actually slipped. And I crashed. Um, and then, so I basically got up, fixed my handlebars, adjusted my wheel, jumped on, rode into um, to start the run in 45th place, 45 seconds down on the pack that I actually was with. I then had the best run split of the day, ran from 45th place through to 11th place, finished two seconds behind Hamish Carter in 10th place, and second New Zealander. Um, and and if I hadn't have crashed, my run split would have given me the silver medal at the World Championships. From that result, I thought I'm definitely in the team. You know, I'm ranked second top New Zealander, got top top 15 in both races. And then the selectors came out and said, "We think Sydney is going to be a swimmers' event, not a runners' event." And I was the best runner in ITU in those days. 
and they left me out of the team um, from you know two votes to one. As it turns out, the Olympic Games was a complete runners' event. Um, you know that the Australian coach of the day said it was completely set up for me, and the guy who won it was my roommate who I train with every single day. And so, look, you know what? I look back then; it, it was it was hard on me at the time, but it definitely made me realise that it was time for me to hang up my hang up my shoes and my hang up my bike and, and and go and get a career. And I would have never have achieved what I've achieved to this day if I had a, had have made the Olympic Games team. So I look back now thinking, you know what? It was probably a great thing. I never actually made the team in the first place. So that's that's a super interesting story and, and a very interesting sliding doors moment, right? Because at the time it must have hurt. It, it kind of not hurt. But yeah. you know, looking back as I say, the outcome is never the outcome. You don't know until you have a longer time frame, right? And and had you made the Olympics, Absolutely. obviously your motivations change. Your, the course of your life um, takes a very different tack. That's interesting. Yeah, yeah, that yeah. yeah. was for sure. That was, and, and, and you, you, you know what? It was a, um, you know, I mean, I, you know, I'm a, you know, I'm a, I'm a born again Christian, and I, you know, it's one thing I often talk about is the fact that. It obviously that that season came to an end, and um, you know, and I think our life is made up of a lot of different seasons, and 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 I think too, my heart had gone by then too. I was no longer really passionate about racing anymore. I was doing it for a job. Um, I was doing doing it for a job more than actually doing it um, for a, you know because I loved it, and so it was actually a good thing. And um, you know, and then when I went into the work for, workforce. Um, I thoroughly enjoyed it. So it, it, it was a good move at the right time. Tell me about kind of how, how your first job at Orca came about, um, how you transitioned from being a, a, you know, a professional athlete into your first job at Orca. How did that, how did that happen? Because you started off in the accounts department, right? Yeah, no, you're right. It's a, it's a, it's a basically, even giving going back from there, I actually, um, the, guy, the guy who owned Orca, Scott Unsworth, was a very good friend of mine. Um, and I was, I was living on the Gold Coast when I was still racing. He, he passed on through, um, passed on through uh, and stayed with me and because at the Orca distributor was based nearby and he, he rolls on through and he goes, oh, um, you know, I've got a new distributor in Australia. He goes, I'm trying to draw up a, a contract for him. And I said, look, oh, I'll give you a hand. I, um, I've had plenty of contracts in my life with various things. And so, and then after I did that for him, he goes to me, how would you like to come and work for me? And I was like, I was like, you know what? I'm actually ready to hang up, hang up my straps. You know, as you said before, I had my third shot on the way, um, and I was I was ready to, to move back to New Zealand. Um, I love Australia, but but I love New Zealand more. Um, <laughs> and um, the problem with Australia, there's far too many Australians. I don't like to always say no. Um, <laughs> um, no, I, um, no, I I love Australians. Um, no, I um I uh, yeah, so basically I, I went there and he goes, I've only got a job in the in the accounts department as, the, as an accounts clerk. Um, so I spent my first um, first six weeks in the accounts department doing bank bank you know bank wrecks every day. Absolutely hated it. Um, and about about six weeks in, the um, the head product developer, um, her and Scott had an argument. She packed her bags and went. Um, Scott came and said, oh, I've got a bit of a problem. He goes, I've got no production, new products person left. I've got a range I've got to put out in six weeks' time. And I said, look, Scott, I know nothing at all about product, I, but I know, I, know, I know what an athlete wants. It was a triathlon brand. I was a triathlete. Um, I said, look, give me, give me a chance. 
and let me see what I can do. So he goes, okay, you're on a plane tomorrow to Italy um, and go and create this collection. You know, you know, go and go and create this collection. So I spent the next six weeks in Italy at the factory, learning about fabrics, learning about how you construct things. Um, I look back now and Scott was really brave giving me the opportunity, um, but was up there, built a collection from scratch six weeks later, bags full of samples, flew to our Orca conference, and showed the collection and that collection i think sold two to three times more than the collection from from the year before um and so so i found my love of product found my love of fabric um i think on that six-week trip i took my um love of being a competitor from the sporting field into the you know into the into the business world and um very quickly became passionate about fabrics and technology and, and wanting to win. I mean, I, I you know, um, I, I took my competitive nature from um, being an athlete to being, you know, orcas um, from orca into up against the, you know, the other guys out there. So that was a really great transition um, for me. And I look back in those days too, I was very naive. I was very young. I was very much like, don't, don't get in my way. I'm here to, I'm here to build a great brand with Scott. Um, probably a little bit immature in regards to probably gotten the hairs of a few people along the way. Um, but definitely it was basically, you know, those first three and a half years at Orca, I was really serving my, my apprenticeship um, before I started, you know, my, my next venture. So it was a fantastic time. Learned so much about product, about margins, about what it took to build a great business, about trying to create a brand which was unique and about being different um and just loved it and, and just worked my ass off but loved every single minute of it yeah fantastic and i love that kind of that moment of bravery as well and, and just throwing yourself into the mix right and you had six weeks to get it to get it right and kudos to scott right for giving you the chance um you know he obviously he deserves a lot a lot of credit for seeing something in you there where do you think i mean one of my favorite sayings is bite off more than you can chew and then chew like hell I often use a different a different four letter word at the end, but um, you, you get the gist. I mean, yeah, you are that exemplified, right? You had zero, literally zero product experience, right? So, I think the fact that maybe you know, I, I don't want to interpret things incorrectly, but being a duathlete, being a triathlete, you kind of have to be obsessed with the tiny details, right? And and going into fabrics, going to fabric technology, um, yeah, is actually it's non obvious, but there are some transferable skills, right? And a transferable mindset there, right? Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, I mean, on that point, I mean, I um, look, I basically wanted to become right from the very start the most knowledgeable guys on sports textiles in the world. And it, it, even from those, even from those first six weeks, even even to when I go to trade shows today, all the suppliers say to me, Jamie, no one asks us the amount of questions that you actually ask us. They say you're always wanting to learn. So I'm always wanting to find something about a fabric or a yarn or a filament or that no one else knows about. And, and I, you know what, and I've always been amazed, you know, often, you know, I think back in the early days, there was a lot more athletes um, in the industry going to trade shows, building fabrics, doing what I was doing. But nowadays it's all basically, you know, fashion, fashion students coming out kind of talking more about color and about hand feel, but not really learning about what the athlete actually truly wants. And, and I think right from the very start, like I wanted to understand, so how does moisture management work in a fabric? What do you need to do to make, you know, make it breathe better? You know, what are you got to do to make it be cooler when you run? Ventilation, you know, all these things. I was asking questions about 
And they were always saying to me, no one has ever asked these questions before. No one asked us the questions like this. And they were, you know, and they, I think they hated it, but also loved me at the same time. Um, but honestly, um, <laughs> you know, and, and, I, and there's very few guys out there that I know of that have had the same approaches that I have to fabrics and another couple of other guys who have along the way. And they were all also ex-athletes just wanting to make the best products possible. And what really frustrates me is that I go, I see these brands advertising their products and just using marketing lingo and there's no real meat behind what they actually say. Um, and cause everything that I build, it, I generally want it to be the best in the world. Um, and as, as the years go on, you find different ways or techniques, um, to do that. And sometimes it doesn't even need it to cost more, just the way you apply certain mentalities. So to answer your question, I've taken my athletic drive and passion into new fields, whether it be, you know, textiles, um, obviously compression played a real big part. Um, obviously when we started two times you, we completely re-engineered what was, what was thought of in a compression fabric. And even to this day that they're still the leaders in it, you know, based off stuff that I did 20 years ago. Um, but just taking that same passion and drive to be unique. I mean, I want it to be someone that leaves a legacy, um, when I die and, you know, whether it be an athlete or whether it be in brand or fabric. So, Look, I mean, I look. I'm just an A-type personality. I, I love what I do. I get excited. I get passionate about it, and I'm the same passion I have today as what I did 20 years ago. Yeah, that's great, mate. I can see it, and I can hear it in your voice that you still have that passion and that excitement, right? For for um, and it's you know your your newest projects, your newer projects, which which we'll touch upon later, are obviously evidence of that passion. But I always say you can't you can't become really really good at something without being a little bit obsessed, right? You need a level yeah. of obsession if you want to be the best in the world, which you do, and and you are, right? In, in the yeah. compression yeah. field, certainly, with two yeah. times you, right? Yeah. So absolutely. Let, let's let's double click on two X U. Obviously, uh, sorry, two times yeah. U. That's such a bad habit. I keep saying two X U. <laughs> I'm sure I'm everyone, not the, does. Everyone, yeah. everyone does. Everyone does. I'm sure I'm not the first person to have done it. Sorry, two times U. Obviously, a massive global success um, in the kind of performance sportswear space. There's a lot of people after those athleisure dollars now, and and two times U are uh, a fantastically profitable and successful exemplar of what can be done in that space. You, you obviously, you talk about doing your apprenticeship and learning the ropes at Orca, um, learning your craft. What was it that prompted you to, to start Two Times You with, with your two co-founders? How did that come about? I mean, really, I mean, so what, ha- what happened was is that um, uh, a guy from Australia, Clyde Davenport, um, he was going to become like a, the licensee for Orca Clothing. Mm-hmm. Um, and the, I was going to move to Australia, work for him, build, build the Orca range into a more, more into a global clothing range rather than a triathlon type brand. Um, and then the very last minute, uh, Scott backed out of the deal. Um, Clyde goes to me, hey, look, Jamie, if you want, you know, we can just start a brand from scratch. I said, I'm on board, um, you know, myself, him. I've got Aidan Clark, another, another guy who was at Orca. I did the sales and marketing manager there. Uh, we, we, me and Aiden moved to Melbourne um, and Clyde gave us nine months. He said, you guys are going to build me a range in nine months. And so I went away and just spent the next nine months taking what I'd learned from Walker. And some of, it was, some of it was actually bad habit. I mean, I think Clyde really taught me. Clyde came from the, uh, the underwear game. Um, you know, Calvin Klein, um, his own brand, Devonport, a um, bunch of other licensees like, like Virgin, like um, Disney and so forth. He taught me about margins, and at Orca we made okay margins, but at, at um, 
and, and also ways to run a really cost-effective business. Um, habits that, that I'd formed badly at, at Orca where we had machinists in-house. We you know, did things in expensive ways. And so really my first, my first few months there was learning to do it Clyde's way, which is, which is to make a solid margin. But that made me look into deeper ways into how to build products much more effectively. And it means I took over probably more of the supply chain, started to build fabrics from scratch rather than buy ones you know, off the shelf. Um, so basically, basically, look, and right from day one, our goal was to build a brand which was completely focused on performance. Um, you know, we, we, we said we never wanted a fashion, a fashion decision to come in front of a performance. Um, you know, and it still had to look good. We knew that. But it was always about function first because by that stage, the big brands had gone more into the heritage range. It was probably an era of sport where a gap opened up for us to go into. Like the big brands were doing fashion collections. They kind of lost the edge on technology. So we kind of came in right away talking about yarns and filaments and fibers and moisture management indexes and just really spoke the language that guys like me wanted to hear. And I was always my own marketing piece i thought if i am i going to believe this is it going to work for me then i want to create it so we basically filled that void and it was it was just and also the era of compression skins had just come out they were australian brands they they kind of owned the market from day one in australia compression was big no one else in the world really cared about it so we kind of came in behind them created this compression brand. but really the first three or four years of two times you was really about triathlon so i think within year two we were the world's biggest triathlon brand within year two of our business incredible by year four we were like yeah by year four we were like three times bigger than the next biggest and then we basically used the money that we generated from triathlon and put it into compression we had to really educate the world and what compression was about but also we also i um found new ways to develop fabrics which just had immense power but still stayed really lightweight and no one else was doing this in the world. Um, our knit structures, the yarns we were using, the deniers of our elastomeric yarns, no one else was anywhere near what we were doing. So basically we created a really amazing fabric and built our compression collection upon that. Um, and really look, I mean, over the next five, six, seven years, I think the true athletes quickly learned that we didn't have the marketing spend of skins, but we definitely had a better. We definitely had, definitely had a better product, and even skins executives knew we did too. We always heard things that they say about us. So pretty much, look, we built this performance brand. We spoke the performance story, and we just really filled this void. And we went global quickly. You know, we had um, USA was a great market. Norway, Scandinavia came along board, and I think people realized, but the Scandinavia was a bigger market for us than, than even Australia and the US was. So really, okay, I think in Norway, I think I think yeah, I think in Norway we had the most um, per capita sales was two times bigger than Australia. Mm. Um, so we had great success in Scandinavia, UK, and then obviously along came um, Alcatadin, which is part of the LVMH group, and and came along at the right time. We I think um, our very best year. I think we were around thirty million um, profit. Um, they came along at the right time and said, "Hey, look, you know, we, we, we want to buy a chunk of you guys." Um, and so we, so we, we ended up going down the whole, the whole sell down, um, sold down purely to get some money out. We're a profitable. We didn't need the money, but Clyde goes, "We're doing well. Let's take some, put some money, money off the table, and you know, you can guys go and buy some nice homes." And I think I was still driving a Vita Polo by then. Um, you know, so, um, um, so, you know, basically we use that money. I mean, I, you know, I went, went and bought a nice house in New Zealand and, 
put a holiday home and, um, you know, and, and then basically from then, I wouldn't say it was a start to the end because it's still a great company. Um, but basically that the founders, we started to lose, we started to lose our hold in the business. Um, when, you know, do you, we, when do you feel you started to lose your hold? Was that in 2018 or, or earlier than that? No, no, no even earlier, probably 2014. 2014, um, yeah. 14, yeah. We, we, yeah, we, we appointed our first CEO, um, um, quite, quite a well-known fellow. He just recently lost his job with Cricket Australia. Um, but he kind of came in from Adidas um, and we were told very much, you, you found a step aside, the CEO knows what he's doing. And I think... Um, you know, I think the the board, the um, our investors, um, LVMH, you know, and even the CEO had the best intentions. But the brand started to lose what we were there for. There's that we were this high performance brand. They felt we were we felt we were too elite, um, and we needed to, to soften ourselves a little bit. Which I agree with a little bit. Um, but I think over the over the years following, we tried to chase the Lululemon market. Um, we kind of lost who we were at the high performance space. Um, and try to chase the num, try to chase the numbers rather than just good, profitable, high end market. And um, and I think you know, carrying on from there, even to this day, I still believe that two times you still makes the best compression around at, at the present time. Um, um, but the rest of the collection probably does not go up to what the compression does or has over the year. So. Look, started 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 to lose that, and I and probably around about three years ago, um, it got to a point when um, the founders kind of stepped away quite a bit. Um, I was offered an op- opportunity up in LA, um, so I kind of I kind of exited for a while, um, and then came came back 2018 for six months, tried to help out. Um, by that stage, things weren't going quite as well as what they had been. Um, we're, we're barely profitable um, at that stage, but look, still, still a great brand, um, and still is today. Um, and then, and then, pretty much um, got offered opportunity to to, to sell my shares uh, along with the other the other two founders. Uh, in two thousand and eighteen, we we sold out completely, and I haven't worked worked one day. I've spoken to two times you since. Um, <laughs> yeah. So yeah. So. Mate, yeah. it's it's so interesting, and and before we we've covered a long span of time there, several years, and but before we go on, I, I want to drill down on on a lot of things that you said individually. Um, kind of the first thing being, you know, when when you when you're ideating on a product, because there's so many entrepreneurial and business lessons there to to unpack. You know, we always say kind of know your customer, right? Think about product market fit for you. You were the customer. You knew exactly what yes. the customer avatar was, right? Because it was exactly. you, right? A, a high-performance yeah. athlete or just the everyman who wants to improve, who wants to be better, right? Yes. So yes. Do, you, exactly. do you feel like that was the primary driver that you were always focusing on performance, performance, performance? It was fabric, fabric, fabric. And that was why you did well. And once the business lost focus on that, that's when it started to unravel. Yeah. Is that correct? Yeah, I, I, 100%. I mean, I, I was always the customer. So whenever I was building a product, I was I was always thinking in my head, would I want to wear this product? You know, with with what I actually know, is it the best actually out there? Am I making the best? Because by that stage, I knew what all the other brands were doing, what their fabrics were, you know, how good they were. You know, I was is this the best in the market? If it's not, how can I make it better? But even with the marketing, I mean, I would always do the copy. For example, I'd hand, hand it across to our marketing team. They would often would dumb it down so much. That it sounded like every other brand on the market. 
And I was always like, no, 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 you're missing the point here. You're missing the key points of difference that we're doing that no one else is actually doing. And, um, and, and, and honestly, if I would read the copy and if I believed it, I'd be like, okay, yeah, this is exactly what the copy needs to say and with the product as well. So you're right. I was always making product completely for myself and completely what I would want to wear and what I would want to hear that would make me want to buy that product. Um, and as time goes on, you know, income, the marketing team, most of them non-athletes, most of them non-high performance athletes, most of them just come in with marketing degrees and, you know, I don't want to hassle marketing degrees, but there is marketing, there's true marketers and there's marketing administrators. And, and often we just got a lot of marketing administrators, not really marketing creatives that would come in with really what I would think second rate things that have been done before in marketing approaches but no, no, it's been done before. You're not getting it. So I would, I would always clash with the marketing team somewhat, just trying to really get across this pure athletic performance voice. And I always say you, you always want to own a niche. And I felt like we actually owned a really, a really good niche. Maybe it was a small niche in some ways, but it was a really good, profitable niche. And that was high performance sport. As soon as you go away from your niche, you try and become all things to all people you start to really lose your point of difference. It's exactly what happened to us as a brand. We lost our point of difference. We lost talking to the athlete like myself. And there's plenty of, plenty of, of myself out there um, or guys who wanted to be, be good athletes. We lost our voice to them. Um, and then we very quickly became this Me Too brand, which I never wanted to create, which, which I felt, um, you know, went against what we created in the first place. And, that, and I guess I'm saying that's probably more than non-compression range. I still think the compression range is still top level at two times U. Even the triathlon range is two times U too, which still makes some great products. Um, but I think the rest of the range really became a, became a bit of a me too. And even nowadays, it's more of a me too brand. Um, haven't seen much innovation come out in the last, the last so many years like we were doing. I think back in 2012 to 14, we were doing some amazing products you know we had amazing collections come out the wetsuit collection the ghost running collection xdrm trail running collection that were really that was probably the best work i ever did you know yeah. um, back in those days so and nothing i think the technology from those days is still there today so disappointing to see where it's gone but still a great brand that i love and still still makes great product when it, i compare it to what else is out there yes yes i mean as you said, if you try to be try to be all things to all people, that's where it, it you start to run into problems, right? It's if 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 you aim to please generally, you'll never delight specifically, right? No, exactly. There's a lot of pressure uh, from the top to maybe dumb down the language, the technical language, in fear that you're going to scare people away, right? But actually, you still yes. have to articulate your real point of difference, right? It doesn't matter if that's sportswear, yes. if it's wine, if it's, you know, whatever. Um, you, you need yeah, to- I, yeah, you, no, you're right. I mean, I, mean I, I always say, unless you can tell a different story, don't try and start a new business. Unless you've got a real point of difference in, in what you're trying to communicate or your product, your marketing. It, I mean, I see so many guys start Me Too businesses thinking you're in for a really hard time. So unless you've got a truly creative idea or concept which, which also is also you, you can you can be profitable in too. You still need to maintain a good margin and be profitable. And that's I see a lot of guys start brands not really truly understanding what what profitability looks like. You always want to start a brand with margins that you are going to be able to um, withstand long term. Um, so unless you're making really good margins from the start, when you start employing accountants and getting warehouses and applying marketing teams, you need 
you, you need solid margins. Um, as you see, far too many guys start brands not with the marketing, not with not with the margins they need to make it truly successful, profitable business. And I think that's the biggest headache that I see with most businesses out there. They they may have a really good brand, but at two times you, we had a great brand, a great product, but also we had a really profitable business too. Uh, which because we were, we were efficient, we knew what we were doing. We weren't fat in our expenses. We had really good OPEX. Um, you know, we just ran a really tight, tight shift. And as soon as we went down the line of getting more executives on board, it all it all blew out. You know, so you know. But again, you you have to understand what you're doing. You don't spend money. You know, and it comes to product and on marketing as well. Um, you know, and so yeah, yeah. It's but, interesting. I mean, let's you know taking any kind of subjectivity out of it i think objectively it's fair to say that two times you does have the best compression you know product on the market how do you actually then educate the consumer the end customer so that they know that right because that's a problem for a lot of people when they're starting their own venture starting their own business they believe they have something truly different truly special but then how do you actually let them know that hey we're better than nike we're better than adidas we're better than reebok in this department does that make sense, right? Actually, yeah, transfer, it, transferring it, 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 that is, is difficult, yeah. right? Closing it's that gap. It's incredibly, inc- incredibly hard. Yeah. It's, I mean, especially when brands put out these, these six-person surveys that say, hey, we make you run faster by 50%, which you know it's a whole lot of bollocks. <laughs> I mean, so, so it's, 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 really, it's really, really hard. But ultimately, we had to just get across them, put the product on, wear it. You know, I think one time we gave a money-back money guarantee, so sold think 15,000 pairs of tights and didn't get one pair back um you know so it was it was always just wear it and then, then you'll believe it and once we once we won the customer over and then it got easier they'd buy three or four pairs they'll tell their friends about it but it, but it took time but it, but, it, but it also took also took great distributors too i mean i mean even 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 in hong kong for example um kirsty in hong kong with our sure step she was she truly believed it too so she was passionate about it and passion in a, in a business always, always had the right away. So I was finding passionate people who believed in the product, who got it across to the, to the consumer, you know, it, that worked as well. So it was like, it was good product, good marketing, a lot of passion going around, but just having a really great product went a really long way as well. Yeah. I mean, at the end of the day, if people purchase and it's, you know, and it's rubbish, then you're not going to get their, their dollars again, right? You're not going to get that repeat customer. But how did you actually execute getting, you know, getting your sportswear on people in the first place? Were there a lot of sponsorship deals with professional sports teams? The AIS, obviously, you tested heavily there. Um, was, was that kind of seeding of free product to, to, you know, nowadays we'd call them influencers, and I hate that term, but by kind of seeding, you know, free product to professional athletes, would they then act as product evangelists and kind of do your word of mouth marketing for you? Was that the best strategy? Yeah, it was. I mean, we, um, you know, we, uh, the very, very first year, um, we, before we even bought our first product out, we actually got the Australian triathlon team in our gear. Um, the ex, the, the, the ex coach was my ex coach of the Australian team. And, and he knew of my days at Orca. And I convinced him, hey, give two times you a shot. Um, um, you know, I made it, I made an amazing fabric that went fast through the water. It was still breathable on land. And so we got our, our, our new brand on this drain triathlon team of the world champs before we even launched the product and they won gold and silver and gold and bronze. So that was a great start to us, but you know, we very much had a mentality with sponsorships. 
unless we can see it generating revenue from it, we normally wouldn't do it. So, for example, like we were sponsored the Australian or the New Zealand teams, the age groupers often would pay for the elites. Um, you know, we, we were very, very conservative in what we spent on our marketing. We always wanted to be on athletes. We never wanted to um, – we, we, we had a model from day one. We never wanted to have models in our photo sheets that were models. They had to be athletes because we wanted to invest in the athletes. Um, you know, we – even with marketing, we never just go out and sponsor somebody for – $30,000 and had to have a right of return, some kind of cape, very strong KPIs on who we sponsored to sponsor them. Gotcha. So we had a really strict, strict marketing budget. And I think if you're smart with that, um, you can do really well with it. You know, so we would do think we'll do marketing campaigns that, that were definitely driven towards sales as well. Um, and, but again, as we got older and it became harder to do, we got marketers on board. We did less of that, but back in the early days, almost everything we did in sponsorship had a direct positive return on investment. Um, so we were really lucky, you know, we triathlon, national triathlon teams. You know, one of our, one of our real big aspects was we were on all but one NBA team in America um, and, they bought, and they bought it all off, our, all, all off us at wholesale. So we actually made money out of that. Um, you know, we, we had some great photo shoots of uh, LeBron James, you know, a Nike athlete in a ESPN magazine it was once an eight-page spread with 14 photos of him wearing our tights in it. Um, and again, they actually they actually paid for the product. So again, we made a great product. You know, I think even in, in football, we had many EPL teams who went with the big guys all buying off us. Mm-hmm. Um, so you're, a, you're, a Liverpool, you're a Liverpool fan, right? Did, did they ever get into I'm it? I'm a massive, yeah. massive Liverpool fan. Did you ever I, speak um, to them? I'm, um, never have because they've always been with like New Balance, obviously. And now we see them now with Nike, so unfortunately not. Um, but but definitely, I, I, I'm actually moving to the uh, UK next year. And um, oh, really? So okay. I've, yeah, I actually am. So I, I've actually already done a um, a list of all the football teams in the UK who aren't with one of the big guys. Um, and so 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 I'm going to go after all those guys. So I know at two times you we had a lot of EPL teams, a lot of Championship teams um, um, were in it. Um, who weren't with the big guys. And actually, those who were with the big guys um, often would wear it in training, um, you know, and then, and then pull it off and put on, you know, the Nike or the New Balance or the Adidas <laughs> compression for, for game day. But look, I mean, like, you know, so they, they, they generally knew that ours was better. And sometimes, I mean, even one year at Two Times You, the, um, the Great Britain Olympic Committee paid us to make the compression for the, uh, you, for the Great Britain uh, Olympic team. Um, we, we unbranded it, but we made sure that all, made sure that all the athletes in the Great Britain team knew it was our compression. You know, yeah, so they so, better know so, as long as they know. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So look, you know, we were lucky because because we had a good product. Athletes actually wanted it, and um, and I never wanted to sign any kind of sponsorship agreements with any athletes unless they really believed in the product. So the first question I'd always ask them: Do you love our product? And was every ever any hesitation, I'd be like. Look, I really don't want to look after you unless you really, really believe in our product. And look, most athletes loved our product, so it was no problem at all. But, you know, I never want athletes on board unless they fully believe in their heart of hearts that we're the best product that, 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 that they want to wear, you know. So, um, yeah, so look, it's, so the whole marketing sponsorship game, it's, it's a tricky one. But if you've got a really, really great product, that's a great step because you get people cheaper um, with less investment. Mm-hmm. Um, you get guys bonded off you who, who would normally get into them for free. Um, so, so at the end of the day, a great product will always win when it comes to that. 
Yeah, mate. So I know I know that's old hat for you, but just very briefly, and uh, uh, I would say I know some of the science behind it, but I think a lot of people won't be aware. Just a quick explanation of actually, you know, who is compression, you know, performance sports we're aimed at, and what's the science behind compression, just so we can cover that. Yeah, sure. I mean, I mean, there's multiple. There's been multiple studies out there, and unfortunately, a lot of studies have been done using what I would call non-compression garments. But, um, but, but at two times you, we did a lot of studies, and every single study that we did came out positive. And 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 on a real high level, um, the main thing it actually does, first of all, for recovery, it actually started in the recovery space. Obviously, when you go to hospital, uh, um, you have surgery. Um, you know, you may have burns. Um, they, they put what we call graduated compression on you. That basically means that, that the pressure is the, is the highest at the extremity. Towards the heart, it gets less, so it pushes blood towards the heart. It just increases blood flow. So it, it just helps with blood flow through your body. If you're lying in bed, you're trying to recover, it just increases your blood flow to get rid of all the waste products, all the toxins um, that you, you may produce when you're working out. But also if you're lying down all day, for example, like you do in hospital, just helps your blood, just, you know, um, your venous return improve just to help articulate the blood flow through your body. So it's going to help you recover faster, get rid of the, the toxins. Um, so when you start training the following day, you've got to feel less fatigued, less sore from the, the day before. The, the, the second main thing I talk about a lot is about muscle oscillation. So when you actually run or when you actually work out, your muscles oscillate or they move. When your muscles move, it creates micro tears. So an, exa- an example I always give is, um, I remember one time um, I did an Ironman in Brazil, maybe about five, five, about five years ago. Um, obviously in an Ironman, I didn't, I didn't wear any compression at all that day um, because it was a really hot race. And, and after, after the race, um, I could walk a little bit. I was a little bit sore. The next day, I was a lot more sore. And then two days later, I could hardly walk at all. And there's a, and, and it, there's a thing called DOM, so delayed um, onset of muscle soreness. So when you work out, your, your muscles shake. It creates micro tears, which causes bleeding. That's why after a big football game, you hop in an ice bath. It helps stop, stop the bleeding. So, so by stopping this oscillation in the muscles, what then actually happens, you have less micro tears, less less, less um, bleeding of the muscles, less soreness. So the following day, two days later, you don't have a sore, a sore muscle. So we help offset that. The, the other part to it too is that when your muscles actually oscillate, it causes fatigue as well. So when your muscle shakes excessively, um, it causes ex- excess fatigue. So it basically means you'll get tighter faster as well. Um, so so that, that's a second op- offset of muscle oscillation. Um, um, so that, that's, a, that's three main things. Another thing too is that when you wear compression too, it actually helps heighten your body's awareness of where your, where your limbs are. So for example, when you actually run, for an example, when you're, often when your foot strikes the ground, it takes time to send a signal to the brain saying your foot's hitting the ground, get ready for impact. It goes down again. By that stage, your foot's probably already landed, gone through an excessive movement. With compression, it actually helps heighten this awareness. So run on concrete, for an example, it actually helps heighten the awareness so you get less chance of injuries based off this much faster reaction time 
to your muscles awareness. It, and it, it's been studied, same with, um, same with like basketball, we get faster reaction time as well. Um, so that is, it's a fourth one. And, and, the, and another really important one too was just the overuse injuries. When your muscles do shake excessively, and say you've come back from an injury, you haven't played tennis for a long time or played golf for a long time, you go and play two, or even got actually got skiing for a long time, um, and you go hit the slopes for seven days, day three, day four, you start to get some like, like tendonitis through your muscles, you get, get quite sore, it creates an injury, and then you can't work out. With compression, it just helps fix the muscle in place a lot more, so it helps support the muscle. So if you are coming back into after a, a break or going more than you would normally would do, just helps alleviate the extra movement on those tendons and muscles is what you would have actually had. So for myself personally, I wear compression mostly, so I don't get injured. There's an overuse injury, for example, um, being a little bit older. So injury prevention, less muscle soreness, faster reaction time, increased recovery. Those are some of the main things, probably three or four more things. Um, we've noticed the lowering of heart rates um, when you walk compression as well. Um, this was studied and verified in two different studies. Um, but those, those studies, I don't talk about too much because there's a margin of error above what, what you could argue. But definitely those first four five things I mentioned, um, compression definitely works. I 100% know that it does. I think every athlete that's worn two times you compression will testify it does actually work. Those that have worn other brands compression that I would say isn't truly compression may not feel the same way. Um, so if you wear good compression, I know it definitely works. And good compression, I probably would talk about maybe two or three brands in the world who actually yes. make good, good compression. Yeah, thank you, mate. That's very, very helpful, I yeah. think, and a, and a good way of articulating kind of the benefits of compression to people. Because I think a lot of people, maybe they're a little bit misguided and they think that, oh, this is just for super elite athletes. No, this is also helpful for weekend warriors, for people working out at the gym. As you said, people playing tennis or going skiing, just to prevent that DOMS. And I know, you know, just speaking from personal experience, preventing that delayed onset muscle soreness, preventing those overuse injuries, it does work. I'm, I'm 100% yeah. believer. I've worn the shorts for years, so... Thank you for that. Yeah, that's cool. Yeah, no worries. Yeah, so I'd like to before we get onto your your current projects, I just want to um, unpack something uh, with regards to two times you as well. So obviously, every entrepreneur, every founder, the dream for well, not everyone, but for most of them, the dream ending is an exit strategy, right? It's a liquidity event, whether you know that's to a private equity arm or an IPO. Um, obviously you and your co-founders manage that with two times you what advice would you give to to entrepreneurs who are looking to to kind of get that uh, lucrative exit what do you think are the most important factors that meant that Louis Vuitton's uh, private equity arm uh, El Catterton wanted to purchase two times you what what do you think are the most important metrics what do you think are the most important things to focus on in order to achieve a successful exit you have got to have uh, a unique look, a unique feel, um, something that will um, something that it would take someone a long time to replicate. You want to make sure that any business come and talk to you that you have, you have the answer at your fingertips. Um, I always say, unless you're making, you know, a good 70 percent, you know, gross profit from day one, it's going to be really, really hard to scale that in the future. 
um, you know, and it, and it can depend upon what industry you're in, but, um, you know, that's got to be a, a real baseline number. Um, but you, you just want to create a brand. You want to create a, something that you put your logo on that's going to sell a product because you built a really strong brand with it, you know. So so anyone out there, look, you know, make sure, you, make sure you've got a unique product, a unique offering. Make sure you start from day one understanding the margins you need to achieve to build a business. Understand what your business looks like in year two and year three the best that you can, but don't go in there with unrealistic numbers of how you're going to grow your brand. Don't try and invest too much ahead of the curve. Try and invest as you grow, um, you know, especially if you're inexperienced um, in your field. And, and, and what I would say too, you know, try and be the best person in the field um, doing, what, doing what you're doing. You know, I, I would hate to be in an industry where I know someone knows it better than me um, because, because that would really worry me thinking on what they're actually working on and, and knowing that whatever they can do would be, would be better than what I do. Um, and it's tough nowadays. It's, I mean, so many, there's so many less barriers to entry now of building brands. There's so many more guys who are actually doing it. You know, back in my days, you had to buy 3,000 metres of a tonne of a fabric. Nowadays, you can go to an Italian mill and buy 70 metres at a time which means there's so many more guys doing it, but way less profitable, way too many competitors out there. So it's definitely getting much harder than it was when I first started, you know, two times you compared to what it is today. Yeah. So obviously there was, I'm guessing there was some kind of non-compete clause for a while, but you're, you're out of that now or coming out of it, I assume. Yeah, I am actually. I am. Um, so, so, so I had a non-compete for two years um, from, from December 19th, 2018. <laughs> Uh, not, not, not that you're counting the days. <laughs> not that I can at, at, at 1.42 p.m., no. No, um, I mean, I, mean, I, mean I, I guess for me it was hard because, I mean, I, I, I am in sportswear. My, my, other two business, my other two business founders with me, sportswear wasn't really what they lived and breathed. It was for me. So it has been really hard these two years. But the non-compete actually was only ever for Australia, the U.S., and for the EU. Um, but I never thought it was probably, you know, first of all, I wanted to respect the fact that they, they, they paid me a good amount of money and, and I didn't really want to step on their toes. So I actually have genuinely waited. I mean, here in New Zealand, I could have started a brand, you know, but I thought, you know, I'm going to wait until it's, it's fully over. So, yeah, so as of, as of January, actually, as of December 20th, no, as of, as of January <laughs> the 1st, um, January the 1st, I am, I am launching a, a, new, a, new, a new sportswear company. Um, you know, I, I, I actually have, um, over the last six months, launched another brand, which is actually the, was the world's first antiviral clothing and face mask company. So it was only ever a real short-term thing, but I managed to um, get the technology really on, early on the piece, and, and that's done really well, done, done really well for us. Um, and it's, been, it's actually been distributed in Hong Kong as well. Um, that brand's called Aviro, and I have distributors all over the world for that. But that's that, that, that's obviously a short, not a short-term play. You know, it'll be around for a long time. I wanted to grow it into a, from antiviral. Obviously, right now it's obviously very topical, but going forward, um, you know, you know, traveling on airplanes, um, you know, um, rest home, rest home people. Um, it's fully antiviral, coronavirus, H1N1, influenza strains. Um, but that's not really what I, where my passion lies. Obviously, it's sportswear. So, Jan one next year, um, I'm launching a new sportswear company, and um, I'll tell you the names. It's the first time I've told anybody a name on, online. Tell me everything, man. Brand, tell me everything. Yeah, <laughs> the, the brand. The brand's called the brand's called Prezio. 
so P-R-E-S-S-I-O. It means pressure in Latin. Um, my, my logo is a wing, um, and the wing, the wing really stands for two things. Firstly, protection. Um, you know, protection, a wing's always been a protection symbol for various reasons. Um, but a wing also ascertains flights and, and, and elevation. So one of our main stories is, is, is to elevate you as an athlete. Um, so the, the range for year one is going to be compression um, and also be run. Um, I, I really feel like in the world of sport, um, I'll come back to compression, but when it comes to run, there's not really been any really great run brands come out from the shadows of Nike and, and Adidas. Of, you know, obviously in cycling, there's a lot of great brands, but I want to bring in a run brand that is next level um, in regards to performance. But in saying that, the price point is really, really solid. I mean, I don't, I've never wanted to bring, anybody can bring out a great recycled line with Fusion Water out of Italy and price it at a thousand Hong Kong dollars for a top. Um, you know, I, you know, with my contacts, my, with my own fabric mills I've got out there, this is going to be a really, really solidly price point run collection. It's not going to be priced outside the masses. I mean, I want to do volume. I don't want to be too niche. Um, so for an example, um, not sure the Hong Kong prices, but it will be available in Hong Kong from day one. Um, Hong Kong is going to be one of my four launch markets for the okay. brand. Um, and which um, which are the other be, ones? What are um, the other launch we're, we're markets? We're going to have obviously uh, Australia, New Zealand, um, and then and then and then also Europe as well. So I've got I've, I've already got um, oh, Europe, including the UK um, as well. Um, so so for example, like a fully fusion welded run top, Italian um, recycled fabrics at about sixty five seventy dollars US, um, and I and I've seen that that compares with what Nike brings out with nowhere near to technology that I've got. And then we're going to have a second tier collection, still fully recycled yarns um, from Reprieve. They'll be about $45, $50 US for a run top. So still and great, great looking garments, um, you know, fitted for runners. It's not going to be big, big boxy styles. Definitely fit the Asian consumer really, really well. Um, um, so that's the run thinking. Then it comes to compression. Actually, um, Kirsty from Doorstep in Hong Kong, has been saying to me for years, Jamie, please, 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 as soon as um, you bring your compression line out, I want it in here in Hong Kong. Obviously, two times you is pretty hard to find in Hong Kong nowadays compared to how, how, it, how it once was. Um, but my my range of compression, it is the next level, the next tier above two times you. Like I try and speak fondly of two times you. It's a great product and it's still the best in the of market. Of course, yeah, it was your baby, what, yeah. Yeah, yeah. so so what, I, what I've done with this new line, I've got – New fiber technologies come through. Um, moisture management is better. I've got a higher gauge, so less sheerness. Um, I've got more power for less weight, which is really, really important. And um, so more power, lighter weight. Um, and the best part of it, I've done it using what we call an, an eco-dye yarn. So there's been zero dyeing in the making of the fabric. And dyeing is probably the biggest industry waste in the, in the industry is the uh, is the getting rid of dye stuffs um, through the streams, especially within Asia. This product, we actually dye it when we actually, before we actually extrude the yarns. So the actual pellets that we extrude the yarns from, they're dyed with a pigment back at the very start. And then when we actually extrude the yarn, the yarns are already coloured. So there's no need to actually have any dyeing process. 
the second great part of that, when you actually dye fabric, it can actually can interfere with the power of the fabric. And with compression, that's really, really important. So now that my fabric is no longer dyed, the power I have my fabric is more consistent and at a higher level. So by, by being more eco-driven, I've actually got a better compression fabric out of it as well, which Brilliant, is fantastic. Best, I mean, best I'm, both worlds, I'm right? super excited about, about doing that. The other cool thing I've done as well, obviously, a really, really great part of, um, sorry, a really great part of Two Times You was the MCS print, which we did for extra muscle holding ability. I've created a new print called a power print, which basically is probably two to three times got more power than what 2 has in their, in, in, in their MCS print. So if you have got, if you're fighting an injury, you do some real high explosive sport, this power print goes over the quads and over the calf muscles. And when you put it on, it feels like your muscles are completely locked in. So this is more our upper tier. So we have, we have two different tiers. And then we have, basically we have a range for, for the masses. We've also got a range just for the runner as well. So there's, there's a run compression range, then also um, which will go inside our run collection, but then also a collection for the gym goer, um, you know, you know the, the the hit athlete, the football player, um, football soccer, whatever else too. Um, so we, we've got a pretty substantial range to launch with. One thing I've done here, I've done here at Prezio is I've kept a really, really lean team. Basically here, we build product, we build the marketing collateral, we build the fabrics, but anything like sales and so forth, it's all been um, given to distributors. Even here in New Zealand and Australia, I won't be the distributor here. So my margin is considerably less than what is standard. I know I'm going to explain this to you before, but, but just through sheer volume of having um, four territories on launch, eight territories that were coming on board extra in March. Um, I've got an, I've got enough volume to, to start a really good business, and you're getting you're getting real value for money in the product. Um, so yeah, look, I'm, I'm really fantastic, excited. Fantastic, man! Fantastic! Can't wait to see it. Can't wait to try it. Yeah, um, yeah, absolutely. And this is the culmination of everything that you've been working on, right? For, for most of your working life as well. This is this again. You use the word hunger, so I'm interested. A lot of people would just tap out now, Jamie. They'd just tap out, right? You made your money. Right? You sold two times you to LVMH. Why go again? Where does that hunger come from to come again and build another game-changing company in that space? Yeah. yeah you know what? I, I honestly envy people that can go and lie on the beach and, and enjoy themselves. But I, um, you know, I, um, I mean, you know, actually during my first, during my first year of, of, of my restraint, I decided I wanted to do, do an Ironman really well. Um, that's the personality that I am. So I went out, you know, trained six months with, with Cameron Brown, one of the world's best triathletes, got 13th overall, including professionals in New Zealand Ironman. Um, first age group by 40 minutes, second age group overall. That's the guy that I am. I, I just cannot lie still, and I wish that I could. I'm, I'm trying to learn. I, I, I've actually, I actually started eight months ago to wake up to do an hour an hour before I start my day, you know, um, you know, reading the Bible and I pray as well and just trying to slow my day down right at the very start just to get into my day. I definitely am slowing down. I don't have the energy I once had maybe 10, 15 years ago. But that's why I've got a really great team here in my office um, of young guys that were, like, that were like me 20 years ago that are young and passionate and, and that are excited. And, and I'm more like a mentor. I'm still here every day, but I'm directing them, leading them. I'm doing the fabrics, they're doing more the back end, admin, marketing, 
but I've got some, I mean, here in New Zealand, we've got so much great talent here in New Zealand. I'm really excited. Even when I move to the UK next year, which I'm, I'm doing it for various reasons, but I'm taking them all with me because they're such a great team, you know? So, um, you know, but you know what? I, I love, I love to do new things. I love to explore. And I did think about not starting a new brand, a new sportswear company, but this, this, this is what I'm good at. This is what I love to do, um, you know, and, and with having a great team here, I don't work nine hours. I probably work um, six, seven hours a day. Um, I get up in the morning in my quiet time. I'll go for a bike ride or for a run, um, you know. Um, so, hey, I mean, I, I just love it. I just, I just love the industry. I've got, got, got a lot of friends in it. Plus, you know what, too? I had a lot of the ex two times you distributors um, after I left. They they checked out of two times you. Most of them came to me saying, "Jamie, can you please start a new brand? Um, we're all behind you." So basically, I think I've got six six of my distributors were basically with the six best distributors of two times you five years ago. You know when we were at our peak. So they 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 will come on board. So I've already got a really I've already got a really great distribution channel in place and that's the hardest part is you can make the best product in the world but unless you've got good distribution you know no one's ever going to know about it you know so so because it would so that that kind of came quite easy um i thought hey let, 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 let's do this and i saw nobody i've seen the compression game kind of lose its edge obviously skins when it's liquidation it's now now been brought out and back by someone else i've no idea who it is two times years not really evolved too much compression has lost some of its luster like it did have maybe five or six or even 10 years ago, but it works. And I think, I think, I think the time is right to say to the world, this is a new generation of, of compression and I'm bringing it out. And so, and no one's come and, and filled that void. And so it's a really, really, I think so often in business too, like studying two times you, timing's really important. And I feel like right now is the right time to bring in this new, innovative, high-performance sports brand led by run, led by compression. I am looking at possibly bringing, starting a triathlon brand in years to come. It will only ever be a hobby because there's, there's no money doing <laughs> triathlon brands. <laughs> um, but I love it. You know, I love it and I can build it easily. Um, but look, it's, it's just, it's in my DNA and I'll, I'll keep doing it. And, on, and honestly, so um, one of the reasons why I'm going to the UK is that my, um, my second daughter, she's starting med school there um, uh, next year. Um, and she's also getting married um, to my to my two IC, um, uh, a twenty one year old guy who um, um, who who's been with me now for the last year and a half, uh, and he, he's just he is me times ten, like <laughs> when I was his age. Um, and he really he really didn't he really didn't want to basically go to the UK. He wanted to stay in the business while we go to the UK. Mm. Also, also to, to build the brand there as well. But but having a guy like him on board too he can do most of the heavy lifting, um, yes. you know, and I also want to, I want to invest in him too. He, uh, you know, I want to see him really grow and do really well. Obviously my daughter's getting married to him. So that's part of it as well. But I do feel like he's the right guy that can carry the legacy on once I grow old too. So it's, it's a good time. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm really excited about, about the next five, 10 years. That's awesome, man. That's awesome. And obviously family is very important to you, but you don't get good in anything without throwing yourself into it, right? You've done a lot of traveling, right? Uh, over the years. How have you managed to balance kind of your family life and building a business empire? How, how have you thought about that? What, what practices, what kind of mental um, 
models have you used to ensure that no one gets neglected? Um, I think I've, I've just got the world's greatest wife. I think, um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, honestly, I, I've led a pretty selfless existence. If I had it over again, I would have changed things that I did. I mean, I was away, I think I was away over 200 days a year for, for 10 years. Um, and luckily, luckily, luckily for me, I've got just, I've got a wife who's just a rock. Um, you know, um, she's always been really supportive, um, of what I've done, believed in what I've done. Um, you know, and, um, so I really can't say that it was me. I gotta say it was her. I mean, she really held the family. She really held the family together. And um, and and you've really, if you are married with kids, you've really got to have a supportive spouse. If uh, you know, if what have you going into? If they're not on board, it's gonna be really hard for you. I'm just, I'm just really lucky. I, I don't say it's me. I say it's definitely my wife who's been the one who's who's really held our family together during this time. And but you know, in sense, when I, when I'm home. Yeah, we've always had really good vacations. Um, you know, when I'm home, I, I try and be home. Um, and, and I'm sure my girls, they always tell me I'm the best dad in the world, so I probably haven't failed too much, but I'm sure all <laughs> girls tell their father that. Um, not all. When I, Definitely I, not all. No, no. I, 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 I think that, that they know that they still always came first. I mean, I was always at the – whenever I was home, I was at the hockey games. I was coaching them. I was doing whatever I could to be present. If it wasn't there, I was always on Skype calls to them, you know, and – and they are all three girls have been just amazingly done amazingly well. I mean, my oldest daughter just finished law school. Um, you know, she's um, just, just currently sitting in the bar here down here in New Zealand. Second daughter, you know, she's um, didn't get into med school on the, on the first try. Second of four years to get into med school. Um, so she's done um, a nursing degree um, in the meantime. And she finally got, got into med school up in the UK starting in January. So super proud of her i mean she is just a girl who's not at all smart um you know she's like me did very average at school but just had a dream and she's just worked the last four years doing med school exams and she finally uh, she, she finally got in you know four weeks ago she, she had told she got in so um hence our move to the uk um as well so um yeah so and, and my youngest daughter you know just um just studied a psychology degree so really really super proud of my girls but all you know all, all kudos to my wife um for being you know the, the woman that she is so you know great to hear man that's great to hear because i mean it's all well and good creating a business empire but if it costs you your family it's not worth it right it's not worth yeah, it yeah no i completely agree and i honestly people people go into business to make money and, and i'm sure and it's it's a it, it, it should always be a byproduct it should not be the reason why you do anything and i mentor a whole a lot of your young kids here in auckland and especially you know some um, young guys in my church and that and whenever i hear whenever i hear the word money i always you know say hey hey don't you never do this for money do it because you're passionate and you love it you know and anybody who does it for the money because you know what money does not bring you happiness money money often can actually be an extra weight around your neck, and I and I and I, I'm open, can openly say to you, there was there was a time when I was making a lot of money um, in the two times due days, and I was actually was miserable um, because it was an extra burden. What do I do with the money? It was a lot of stress. I was not actually enjoying. It. So there's definitely a, a definitely a real balance in life. Do never never be driven by the money. Be driven by what you're passionate about. Um, be driven, you know, have a real good balanced life. And I know it's a bit of a cliche because a lot of guys say it, but, you know, put your family first, put yourself first, stay healthy, keep fit, 
money's never going to fill the hole in your life you think that, that it's going to fill. It's never going to fill the void um, of being joyful and happy because it just never will. You know, so it's a byproduct. It's nice to have. You can go on nice holidays. You can fly business class. You can have a nice. You can have a nice big house. But never, never, ever let it be the driving force behind whatever you do. That's great advice. Great advice. Um, you, you mentioned that you're a born again Christian, and you're trying to slow down a little bit in, with this morning routine. Yeah. So, can you tell me what what kind of prompted you to become a born again Christian? Tell me about how that's that's helped you. Um, was it something that you needed? You think you really think you needed to to happen? Uh, to just tell me everything. Yeah, I mean, I mean, pretty much. I mean, I mean, back in my early days, I mean, I, I mean, I was born again when I was about, um, I think I was nineteen years old. Mm-hmm. So it was a long time ago now. Um, I, I just actually just won my first world title as you know, um, as a junior, and I was a little, and but I grew up in a family home. Um, I, have, I have three uncles who are church ministers, another auntie who's 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 who was a missionary. Um, so I grew up with it always being part of my life. But definitely when I was nineteen, I was like, you know what? I there's a lot more to life than living life for myself. Um, so that definitely spurred me and, you know, spurred me in that direction. And, you know, very luckily for me, I, I got involved in a great church, met my wife at my, at my church and, um, you know, I had got a, got a really great extended family through my early days. And look, it, it's just really carried me through life. I look at, look, I've gone through ups and downs. You know, I've always had my faith has always been there, but, you know, I've definitely had periods of my life where I, I've drifted further away from my faith, not to the point that I, I wasn't a believer, but definitely not pursuing um, God the way that I should. Um, and probably like, probably I said, about nine months ago, I've been through ups and downs. Um, you know, I've had depression in my life, earlier in my life as well, just from having a life at a million miles. And it was done, it was more through, um, more done through working just too hard, not slowing down, more than more than being depressed from being sad. Yeah. Yeah. But, um, but really, I decided, I said, look, I, I want to live a life that's more balanced. So, you know, nine months ago, I started this routine. I get up at six in the morning. I have an hour to an hour and a half. I'll just start off reading the Bible, have half an hour of prayer, read, 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 you know, read a book of some type, just start my day, slow down, where always my day was get up, go training. And, you know, up go, up, up go your cortisol levels, you know, so you're, you're, you're burning them from day one so now now i work into my day i'll i might go to work work for two or three hours i might go training at about midday just really slowing my life down so you know you know whether it be christianity or whatever belief you might have meditation first thing in the morning just starting your day at a slower pace has definitely helped me um being the a type that i actually am yeah um and look i think i think definitely you know even though i've been a christian now for close on 30 years um spiritually i'm the strongest i've ever been less things worry me um my kids are in a great place um work's going really really well um but in the things that do come along i'm definitely in a place where i can hit them hit, hit them head on get them out of the way quickly and just move on where in the past they might have, might have lingered with me any kind of conflict of any type or kind of stress things that might happen with me i tend to hit them now in the last 12 months hit them one or two deal with them, then move on and forget about them. So I'm definitely in a much better place in my own life, just slowing my life down through those early starts, through my and my faith as well. And, you know, definitely, um, you know, I, I um, spend a lot of time. I uh, pre- preach at church quite a bit now, especially to the youth. I've got a real heart after the youth. 
not just through Christianity, just, you know, being young is tough nowadays. You know, being young, I've three, had three kids grow up through teenage years, watch them all struggle with their identity, you know, where they fit in the world. Um, but just help young kids realize, you know, what life's about, you know, even outside the Christian life, you know, you know, about joy and peace and happiness and, you know, living a life for others, not living life for yourself. You know, it's a, best, it's a true way to find happiness, you know. Um, you know, so all those things have been, have been a really great part of my, you know, my, my journey, but even the last 12 months, really, really um, a lot more time, really honing in those areas and studying more about those areas and so forth. Yeah, that's great, mate. And, and like you said, I think those, whether it's through Christianity or spirituality, otherwise, there, there are certain values, there are certain principles that transcend any one individual religion that are the core essence of a good life, of a life well lived, right? Um, and and, and I, I can see, I can see, mate, it's coming, it's coming through your face like freaking sunbeams. I can see that you mean it, and <laughs> and, and you and you're very happy with with where you are in your life now, which which is nice to see. If if you're open about talking about it, could could we just touch briefly on you know you said you you suffered from depression i think a lot of us have and a lot of people yeah. aren't willing to talk about it but but if you are um i yeah, think it's absolutely. something that yeah i think it's something that really doesn't get talked about enough within entrepreneurial circles because to be a founder to be an entrepreneur you take on an immense amount of emotional and psychological pain and yeah. do you have yeah. to constantly live in a state of paranoia because you're always worried about you know Am I doing enough? Am, am I outworking the competition? Am um, you living in a constant state of ambiguity, right? Which, yeah. which a lot of people don't have to deal with. What was it that kind of caused you to, to, to lose your way a little bit? And, and how did you come out of it, if, you, if you're open to talking about it? Yeah, sure. No, 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 honestly, I, I'm very open with it. I, you know, it's been one of my, um, one of my um, things that having gone through it, you know, I, I, I wear it on my sleeve. I mean, I, I'm speaking openly about it. I speak openly with people about it, especially in men's groups. One thing I, one thing I, you know, one thing I will say is because I'm so open with it, people come to me with their own, you know, where they're at with stuff. And I can say to you, hand on heart, almost every one of my successful entrepreneurial friends has been through depression. Almost every single one of them. I mean, it is just, it is just the world that we live in. We're not designed to be on our phones twenty four seven. We are not designed to be constantly on airplanes, you know, traveling amongst different time zones. The tiredness and the fatigue from that. We're not. We're not designed to, to be that way. We're not. And I think, you know, if you are going to be successful, you have to understand there will likely be a time in your life where you go a little bit too far. And I think when you have gone through it, you then get to understand. Understand what are your triggers? Um, you know, it's a, it's a common phrase that, that's used with, with, with obviously with depression, and anxiety. You learn. I mean, I know with myself when I go to Europe and back. Um, I know as an example, when I get home, I will often will probably spend two or three days in a bit of a depressive mood because the chemicals in my brain, the fatigue from that flight. Um, you know, I will likely will have have some bad days when I come home. You know, and it's just I've now I've now learned that, so I've now learned to make sure those days are actually days that are a bit slower now, where I can sleep in and I can have to go to work so much. And normally we get back from those trips and 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 jump and jump quite. Well, you want to download everything that you did on the trip, right? Yeah. You know, I'll I'll tell you I'll tell you quickly an, an amazing story that yeah, I heard. Yeah, please do. Uh, about this, I mean, one I once heard a um, an interview with someone talking about. Um, depression and anxiety in troops 
and, and, and they were talking a lot about after World War One and World War Two, the amount of depression and anxiety from those troops compared to um, soldiers nowadays was well less than half of what it is in modern day troops. And they worked out what it was, is that after war, these guys would hop on ships and they would sail for two or three weeks home to when they actually went. So during those two or three weeks, they talked through their battles with their comrade, you know, with their mates, they, they talked through, they downloaded, they slept, they decompressed all they had gone on with their lives. So when they got home, they were, they were in a much more ready state. But nowadays, you fly home from battle and wherever you may be, you're in your family life, the stresses of home, you haven't really dealt with all that was going on. And like, and it's a really good analogy of what we go through in our days nowadays. And, and so, 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 so to answer your first question, I mean, I think a lot of it started, um, I've always been really, really full on, had a really clear focus in my life. And when I actually left Orca, I didn't leave there in, in, in a good way. I left, um, obviously the owner was like, how can you go and start your own brand? You're my friend. And even though I moved to another country, but a conflict there, um, the church got a bit involved in it. I was, I was still a quite a young Christian, you know, somewhat. I was confused by it all. And then it kind of drifted me into confusion, anxiety. Had I done the right thing? Fear came in, anxiety came in, then gradually depression came in. And I probably spent probably three to four years in depression during that stage. Right. It was a really long battle. Long time, I learned, yeah, I learned a lot about myself. I learned about that life. I got closer to God during that time, obviously. I learned that all that stuff he doesn't really care about. You know? <laughs> <laughs> and so take on, we think too much about things sometimes and we think we've done things that are wrong and, and often we overcomplicate things in our own minds. It's often as a start of depression and anxiety. You overthink things and you... Think about things that don't really matter too much and you lead down this path of thinking the wrong thoughts and then next thing you know, you're depressed, you know. So, you know, you know, one scripture in, in the Bible is, you know, take your thoughts, you know, captive. And that's a really good thing. You gotta understand, you know, what is right and what is wrong to think about. You know, so I guess it's through my journey through depression and anxiety, I now are very clear on my triggers, very clear on what what is right and what is wrong, you know, and sometimes we make mistakes, but just move on, you know, say sorry and move on. Don't, don't dwell on those mistakes. I'm, I'm actually really hard on myself. I, if I offend anybody, I pick it real, really to heart, you know, we too much at times, um, you know, learn that we're all going to make mistakes, learn that we're all human, learn that we, um, but learn, learn ultimately, you know, in my life that I'm loved and I'm accepted and, you know, we are human, you know, that we will make mistakes and just move on and nothing, nothing, Nothing is ever going to separate you from me from the love of God, you know, is what, is, is what my belief actually is, you know. So, look, it's been, it's been a journey, but it's been a great journey. And I, and I think even talking to you about talking about people in my life, it's been a journey that's helped others. And I think, you know, ultimately, if I can leave this earth helping others, having lived a life where I can help people, is, it's fantastic. You know, more than, more than even giving money away, which I've been able to do, which has been great. Um, over my years just helping others you know get through life because we live in new in a new age and it's a it's a tough age to be young it's a tough age to be old um you know and um yeah so that's great mate that's great yeah. well, thank you for sharing that thank you yeah. that's um yeah leave things better than you found them right and i, and I think uh, i always 
like you, I'm, I'm very open about talking about mental health, but a lot of guys aren't, especially in professional sport, right? In, in my world of football, in, in your sports as well, it's, it's still a little bit of a taboo when it comes to men's health, talking about uh, depression. So thank you for sharing, mate. Thank you. No, no problem. No worries. So I like to ask the same kind of final closing questions to every guest. It gives a nice common thread to all of the episodes running through. Um, so could you give me one powerful but simple habit you've adopted that's improved your life two times or 10 times? <laughs> yeah, like it could just be your, your morning kind of not meditation, but your morning practice, yeah. but it could be anything. Yeah, what's... I think starting the day right. I think getting up, getting up with, with the right hand of mind. And if you're not in the frame of mind, get yourself checked and changed. So when you, when you enter the world, that you're actually in a good place. Um, you know, I think that that's a really important ritual that I've recently learned, uh, which has truly changed, changed me, makes my day better. Um, and so, yeah, so start the day in the right, right mindset. Don't leave home until you are in the right mindset if you, if you possibly can. That's great, mate. That's great. Uh, if you could distill it down to just one thing, what is the most important principle you live your life by? Um, putting others before myself. That's, I think that's one thing that that's, I'm always working on it, and I don't say that I do all the time, but I think it's definitely, for me, the, what, the way I, I get through life and feel the happiest is when I know I can be there for others and support others. And honestly, the, and the more I go down that, that line of thinking and thought, um, the more I actually enjoy life. And it's a scientifically proven thing that when you live a life for others, not for yourself, and you don't think of it all the time, you truly live a happier life. So that's definitely one thing that I try and live by. Yeah, brilliant. Is there anything that's particularly memorable, the, the most memorable thing that anyone has ever said to you? So it could be words of wisdom. It could be maybe something from your parents. could be something that your wife said. could be something that you heard a celebrity say. What's, what's the most memorable thing that sticks with you? It's a, it's a tricky one. It's a tricky one. one. I know, because you have to go through the back catalog. <laughs> oh, on the spot, it's hard. I know, oh, there's, um, there's probably been so many. Um, uh, oh, uh, it's a real hard one, hard one to understand. Probably from business. Uh, honestly, I can't answer that question, to be honest. I mean, I can, I can tell you. I <laughs> yeah, can tell that's you right. Corny, I, I can tell you, I can tell you a, a real corny phrase. Um, you know, um, Do it. You know, with, <laughs> no, I won't because it's too corny. <laughs> no, I, I can mean, cut I'm, it. I, you know, no, I remember I was very, you know, the whole, the whole no pain, no gain. I mean, I, I can remember it. I can remember in life taking it outside that and thinking you're never going to achieve anything in life unless you're really going to really want to hurt for it, you know? And I think, you know, if you want to make, do anything great, you're never ever going to achieve it without some pain. You know, it, it takes hard work to be, it takes hard work to get anywhere in life if you want to do something special and, and unique. And there'll always be barriers, always be barriers in the way. Um, but just stepping through those barriers and moving forward. Um, you know, there's, you know, I, I look at myself, you know, I grew up pretty uneducated. I, I failed, failed, I, I failed school miserably. Um, you know, you know, I've, I started off, um, you know, I've got a speech impediment, you know, I started off probably not with having the full tools to be doing what I am today, you know, and, and I've, I, you know, I think I've, I've led a pretty successful life with all those barriers in my way. And I think just being through hard work, you know, and, and so I guess no pain, and no gain is, is a corny way of saying that. But, you know, I think, you know, 
it just takes damn hard work. But, you know, anybody can be successful in this world if they really, really want to put their heart to it, you know, with really good guidance and along the way as well, of course. Yeah, brilliant, mate. That's awesome. And a great, a great way to end it, mate. Thank you so much for your time. I know, um, I, I know you've got a couple of missed calls there. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> mate, brilliant. Next time you're in Hong Kong, any idea? Um, I'm going to, I'm actually flying through Hong Kong on the way to London, but I think I'm going to stay in the airport, but definitely back there in, definitely back there in April, May, if I can get there. But obviously, who knows? Who knows what the world right now? But um, but we, we, we'd love to be there. Yeah, <laughs> mate, cover cover your whole body in right. that Aviro stuff, right? Make a body exactly. suit, <laughs> and you'll be fine. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> all right, mate. Great. Thank you so much again, and uh, I'll chat soon. Yeah, I'll no let you know when it's all ready. Thanks, mate. Great. Cheers, yeah. Jamie. Thanks, guys. Bye. See ya. Bye. Plenty of great lessons there to take away from my chat with Jamie. Number one, sometimes something that appears to be very painful in the moment turns out to be a blessing in the long run. When something bad happens to you, it's almost always too soon to judge or fully evaluate just what the repercussions might be. Jamie missed out on his dream of competing in the Olympic Games through a combination of different factors, none of which were his fault. And he likely would have won a medal. But had he done so, it's also very likely that he never would have taken that job as a lowly accounts clerk at the triathlon brand Orca. And without that job at Orca, he never would have been thrown in at the deep end when Orca's head of product quit out of the blue and Jamie was trusted with putting together a collection in six weeks. Without that experience, he likely never would have started two times you. So in essence, it's often far too early to judge if a particular outcome is going to be good or bad for you. We do not always get to choose the tools that shape us. Number two, speaking of having the right tools, Jamie admits that he was ill-equipped and didn't have the full set to succeed in life. But good guidance, a relentless work ethic, and his faith all combined to allow him to overcome those obstacles and barriers that would have held many other good people down. Lesson number three, if you try to be all things to all people, then you will end up being attractive to no one. Find a niche that you can own, however small that niche may seem, and try to be the best in the world at it. Jamie is clearly incredibly passionate and super, super knowledgeable when it comes to sourcing fabrics and creating compression wear. Being the best in the world in that space allowed him to build a 200 million US dollar business. He knew it didn't make sense to go up against the likes of Nike and Adidas in the fashion and mass market categories, so he went to the place least crowded and attack the market from an angle where he could actually win. Number four, don't allow money to be your master and never build a business just to sell it. A successful exit and the accompanying financial windfall is a byproduct. The cash is a byproduct of a strong brand and a profitable business that's been created from a place of passion. Lastly, lesson number five, the importance of family and looking after your community. In his own words, if you're a successful entrepreneur, then it's likely that at some point you will go too far. It's just the nature of the beast. Which is why having a supportive spouse or partner is vital to your well-being, as is being able to speak openly to friends and or fellow churchgoers in his case about how you're feeling, because depression affects far too many founders at some point in their journey. The more he lives for others, the happier he is. And it was apparent to me that he felt he was in a really good place right now and in a position of real strength to help others. 
That's it from me for another week or two. And if you enjoyed this episode of Playing the Inner Game, please do give us a review on Apple Podcasts if you're listening on your iPhone right now. Also have a think about your friends and family, anyone you think who might enjoy hearing the lessons contained in this show. Please do share this episode with them. Aside from that, if you'd like to learn more about uh, Jamie's work, I've put some links in the show notes. And if you'd like to hear from me more often, you can visit michaelxcampion.com. That's www.michaelxcampion.com. And I would love it if you subscribe to my newsletter, which is just a short weekly email where I send you the best things I've been listening to and reading on the internet. I am constantly scouring the internet for the best nuggets of wisdom so you don't have to. And I pepper it with some public speaking tips and motivational pick-me-ups, some insightful commentary on articles I've read, just something that's always positive that you can look forward to reading every single Thursday. Thank you once again for joining me. And until next time, take care and much love. Thank you.